is this new book. And usually, I don't pay much attention to what's on the inside flap. But I did note that the book will be available in America and Canada. Uh, Chaps, are you aware that this will go around the world? Uh, Yes, we were. Um, We're hoping it goes absolutely everywhere around the world and beyond. Yes. Um, But we were told it's, it's released in the US in March, I believe, which is very exciting. There's a big market for both clubs. Um, all around the world, as, as we found out as we, we went into the book. So, yeah, really looking forward to that and hoping that lots of people in the US and Canada find it interesting enough to buy. Well, and it is out in the UK just before, and you didn't know what the fixture list would be, although, Phil, you're so high up in football literature that I wondered if you had a word with the fixture computer because United Liverpool is, as this goes out, a week on Monday, so we're in the week where social media will be filled of the modern-day equivalent of nails protruding out of golf balls, um, which is the image that... Yeah, it's, it's, it's certainly a very fortunate uh, piece of timing for us. I can't say I had any influence. I wish you could say I could. Maybe Jim might have uh, yeah. had a word or two, but certainly if somebody had said to us, right, the book's out on August board, when would you want Manchester United and Liverpool to meet each other? We certainly would have said inside the first fortnight of the new season at Old Trafford, uh, with lots going on at both clubs. I'm sure Jim would agree with that. Yeah, Timing is brilliant on this, uh, actually, Johnny. I mean, it is uh, an extraordinary coincidence. <laughs> um, it's an interesting point in the, their relationship. I mean, one of the things we discovered during the course of the book is that given that both clubs between them are the most decorated clubs in English football history, they've won more trophies between them than anyone else has. The odd thing is they've very, very rarely been in direct opposition for those trophies. They've met in two League Cup finals, two FA Cup finals. I think they've met in Europe once. And they've only had a couple of uh, contesting the, the league. And it wasn't close like... Manchester City against Liverpool last season was. Um, one of them is generally on the up while the other's in relative decline. And we're really seeing that at the moment. Liverpool Indeed. are playing, doing brilliantly. United doing real decline. And that's a very interesting thing about the relationship between the two clubs because relative decline doesn't seem to mitigate the, the animosity. Um, you know, the, those who are in relative decline become ever more bitter, and those who are uh, on on the uh, on the ascendant become ever more patronising. And it makes the it makes the the, uh, the the rivalry all the more antagonistic. And you're right; it will be on social media in the build-up to this very very antagonistic. There'll be lots of sneering going eastwards down the M62 and lots of bitterness going westward down the M62. It is never a dull time. I think they've played each other, what was the stat? Was it 267 meetings? I seem to have plucked that figure from the air. But uh, yes, there is only enough oxygen in the northwest to sustain one of them on the up. I can not confirm that I am a Liverpool fan. I absolutely must stress impartiality there. Jim will happily... Uh, nail his colours to the mask, but I have to be strictly impartial. So BBC man, you see, Phil, um, yep. absolutely, um, Johnny absolutely. BBC man. So very, very impartial. And uh, and in his writing, you will notice there is no uh, prejudice ever shown. He's he's absolutely on the money every time. Well, that is right. Um, 
Although I did also notice, Phil, you've written nothing since June. Have you actually had a sabbatical or have you been told not to write anything because United fans will have a go at you if you say anything? Even no, no, I have, reappe- I have reappeared, although I've not uh, had United or Liverpool come across my radar yet. I did the closing stages of the Women's Euros, which was great. And at the weekend, uh, I pitched up at the Premier League again. I was at Everton versus Chelsea on Saturday and... Um, then West Ham versus Manchester City on Sunday. But next Monday night, um, I will be at Liverpool versus Crystal Palace ahead of uh, myself and Jim's public appearance in Liverpool on the Tuesday night, blogging the book shamelessly at Waterstone. So oh, no, I have that. And um, I will be, along with Jim, at the Manchester United-Liverpool game. So I'm giving a lift, him a lift home that night. So it may be that I have to reach across on the <laughs> steering wheel with a consoling arm um, to, to help him. To help him on the journey back to Oxford, where we both live. That's right. It is. It's so sad. Uh, I read a piece that you wrote after the four-nil win in April. Phil, you called Manchester United a monstrosity. You wished Derek Den Haag yeah. good luck. You said that uh, although Liverpool fans sympathised with a grieving Cristiano Ronaldo, United lacked guts, heart, fight, even an ability to tackle. Harry Maguire looked broken. Well, that was actually, and if, if you ever saw that game, I was actually singling out the good bits there. Mm. Um, <laughs> funny enough, when I used the word monstrosity, um, it was discussed a little bit in the office of the BBC about whether maybe it was too strong. In the end, we felt, no, that performance was so bad that we have every right to call it a monstrosity. And then the following Friday, Ralph Ranjik, I don't know whether you remember him, um, actually said that this is a club and a team that needs open-heart surgery, so me calling them a monstrosity uh, was almost praiseworthy compared to the, the guy who was actually the manager. Mm. But um, it, I, I have seen Manchester United lose 4-0 at Anfield before. I think it was in about 1990 uh, when Peter Beasley scored a hat-trick. But even then, um, I don't remember it being on the scale of humiliation and capitulation and embarrassment that was heaped upon them at Anfield. At the end of last season, if I recall, Pogba uh, was off and gone after about five minutes with a muscle injury. And it was just a dreadful, dreadful evening. And uh, in the end, we talked about it and we decided monstrosity was not too harsh. If anything, it was almost too kind. Yeah, I mean, we have too little time for Jim to really kind of give an ongoing post-mortem. But next Monday, when United host Liverpool, would you be happy if it stayed nil-nil until about 60 minutes and then the floodgates opened when, I don't know, Jota and Diaz come on the pitch, as opposed to Manchester United, who are probably going to start with, I don't know, Rashford and um, Lissandro Martinez? Uh, But what do you hope, best case, for um, next Monday? The, the interesting thing we discovered right in this book, Johnny, is that, as we said, there's a, there's a gap between preeminence. You know, one's on the up, one's on the down. But whatever happened uh, in the past, when the one that was down always did their best to put a spanner in the works of the one that was up, and it, they took it very seriously. This was the match that mattered, and they would play their heart out, even if they knew... When, it, when push came to shove, even if they knew they weren't as good as the opposition, they would always put their best performance on. And what really hurt Manchester United fans last year was in the 5-0 defeat, I mean, uh, if Phil called the 4-0 defeat a monstrosity, they lost 5-0 at home to Liverpool last year. Could have been worse. And, and, they stopped uh, scoring it could have been worse. 50, yeah. And I think, I think Phil 
was used in in his uh, uh, writing is used is the word declared. Uh, Liverpool effectively just oh we'll ease off here we'll, we'll, we'll give up. Not good enough for United fans. That really was an appalling performance, as was the one at Anfield. And I think what you're saying, what do we hope for as United fans? Just a bit of fight. Just putting an effort. You know, nil-nil after 65 minutes would be a good result, I think. Nil-nil after the end of 90 minutes, I think they'll be erecting a statue to Lissandro Martinez, won't they? Well, will they be in the ground? Because one newspaper that I read, not the one you work for, um, said that United fans aren't going to go in. Well, it's, it's, it's something to do with the... It's an empty Old Trafford protest, isn't it? I'm not quite sure whether they will go in and come out or just not go out, go in in the first place. But of course, we've had this before, and again in the last few days. And Jim is is an expert on this subject. We we have seen this real toxic feeling towards the Glazers when they go to the first United match of the season. Um, they've not got great signings, really transformative signings, if you like. I'm not um, doing down Lissandro Martinez or Christian Eriksen there, but the real transformative signing, the real big money that has been—it just hasn't happened. And, of course, when you see Brighton so well-organised, pass United off the park in the first half, hang on in relative comfort, even after United pull the goal back very fortuitously, I think it just brought all those feelings about the Glazers back into sharp relief. And then you also, and Jim has touched on this quite a bit when he's been talking about it, it brings into sharp relief the contrast between the way Manchester United is currently being run and the way Liverpool is being run by their American owners. I mean, Jim can expand on this. And we go into this in, in the book about contrasting how the teams are cut, or the clubs, I beg your pardon, are currently being managed on and off the pitch. Um, again, I think the pain of that opening day when everyone, even the lowest of the low of us among football fans, travel to that first game is often to see that in front of you at Old Trafford, so called the Epic Dreams. It's, it's a cold shower, isn't it, in, mm. in terms of your hopes for the season? Sorry, I was, I was leaving space for Jim. Off you go. Uh, yeah, sorry, no, I, I, it's too painful, Johnny, it to is. go I into the... I thought so. I'm sorry for your loss. I mean, interesting, interesting you, you, you mentioned about the protest. Um, Liverpool fans protested uh, a few seasons back. I don't know if you remember. Uh, there was a plan that the, um, the American owners there were going to charge £77. Yeah. Pounds. Uh, for a ticket price and loads of people left the ground on 77 minutes it was a brilliant protest worked really well and in fact they did a a big reverse ferret the uh the the owners and decided against it the the difference in, in in ownership is is actually again we go back into the history of these two clubs there always seems to be a point where the ownership isn't working for one or other of them. You know, back in the noughties and the 90s, when Liverpool were desperately trying to catch up commercially and on the field with United, they looked to what United were doing behind the scenes, their management, their their infrastructure, and they wanted to copy that. Now, I think that's a complete mirror image. I think most United fans would look down the M62 and see the way in which Liverpool's run, not just the ownership, not just uh, the, the Fenway Park group in charge, but the individuals within the superstructure. So you're talking about uh, M- Michael Edwards, the guy who's in charge of their recruitment. You're talking about Michael Gordon, who is the CEO. And, of course, the big man in charge, the big impresario, the manager himself, Jurgen Klopp. In comparison, 
Manchester United seems to be full of real second raters. So it's not just that the owners are asset strippers who are sitting pretty, just looking to withdraw their dividends and not putting any investment in. They've also presided over really poor management within the club. And I think that is worth protesting about. And I think that that will continue. And whether it is a complete uh, boycott, I very much doubt. I think Liverpool as a game means too much, but there will be protests there. I think a point worth making about Manchester United fans as well and the ownership is that they've not just started doing this because the team has been in decline in recent years. They were onto the ownership pretty much from day one. Do you remember the yellow and green stars? Absolutely, yeah, green and gold um, protests. This was when the team was riding high, the club was riding high. I think they detected it right away. Liverpool's fans took a little bit longer with Hicks and Gillette just because they were in such reduced circumstances when they arrived and Hicks and Gillette were a bit more visible than the, the Glazers. They they turned up and gave it the sound bites, you know, the old ten-gallon hat, all this sort of thing. Um, Manchester United fans were against the Glazers from day one. They're not some Johnny come lately's who, oh, hang on, Liverpool are quite years ahead of us now. We're, we're going to have to do something about the ownership. They were onto them right away as ownerships they felt were not forced to I think the comparison between the Glazer ownership and the ownership of the water utilities companies is, is a very telling one. I think if you look at the water utilities companies, what they have done is they've been bought out during privatisation uh, by fund managers and things like that. These companies come in, they don't invest in the infrastructure because they've got a monopoly situation. They just withdraw hefty dividends and get rich. And then we get a crisis situation, as we've got at the moment, and the infrastructure isn't up to it because they haven't been putting money into it. And I think the other thing, of course, that has also gone on is they've allowed sewage to pour into all our rivers because the infrastructure's not there. So yeah. the comparison with Manchester United is exactly the same. It is that they have not invested in the infrastructure. They've allowed it because when they bought into it, it was fairly rugged and, 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 and sound. They've allowed it to wither on the vine. And now it's a shit show. It's exactly the same as the water utilities. And, and, the, and the Glazers' responsibility is, is huge uh, in United's decline in every way. And, and my fear is, I don't know whether Phil agrees with me on this, uh, my fear is that I don't think United are going to catch up with Liverpool again. I mean, they are light years behind at the moment. Mm. They're not going to catch up again until that lot have gone. I, was just, say, when you, I thought when you said again, you were, you were making that as a finality. I think we all know football is, is cyclical, but I think, given, as Jim has said, the Glazers' track record of bad decision-making, um, of ruling from afar, um, not being in touch with things, I, I totally agree that until, until something happens with the ownership of that football club, uh, then Manchester United will be not just behind Liverpool, but certainly behind Manchester City. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was at Manchester City on Sunday and United drew at 2 o'clock and Manchester City won at 4.30. And we basically just said afterwards, well, that's it. They won't be ahead of Manchester City again this season or even particularly near them. And that was after day one of the Premier League season. And I bet that's proved correct. I bet Manchester United now will not be ahead of Manchester City again this season. And that's a prediction lots of people would make the confidence. 
It's a very weird season, I imagine. Well, actually, I don't know if Jim is going to Qatar, but Phil, if you are the football editor of BBC Sport, I hope you're going at some point. Oh, no, I'm there, I'm there for the whole thing. Good. I expect Jim is as well. Um, yes, so I'm going as well. I, I, I'm going as well, Johnny. Yeah, um, I, I'm going out there. Yeah, so I'll just mention that. There's, there's all kinds of fun in the next six months about the season being disrupted. I'm not keen on two things. One... Newcastle United, the story is going to be Wise and Alan Shearer talking about Jamal Khashoggi. That's going to be a story. Uh, and the second story is, well, um, Haaland is fine, Salah is fine. But if, say, Harry Kane falls over, clutching his hamstring in late October, that becomes the story. So it's the metatarsal 2002-2006 all over again. Yeah. Um, and let us hope that there are no kind of handshakes involved or, or kind of fist bumps nowadays because reading this book read on red Liverpool Manchester United and the fiercest rivalry in world football certainly the most watched rivalry I think even ahead of the Classico just over the last 20 years certainly even the white suits final uh, but the rant that you mention and the handshake between Everett and Suarez it's soap opera I feel that I yeah. get my serial drama from football rather than from like Emmerdale Farm or Corrie <laughs> or EastEnders. I don't know if either of you find that it's well, well, more it, so. It, funny enough, in one, in one of the chapters in the book in 1988, um, I don't know whether you're ever you're old enough to remember a show called Crossroads, Johnny. Um, it was, the, the high drama was it was set in a motel in Birmingham. That was about as dramatic as it got. And it was, uh, as we say in the book, a monument to wobbly sets, actors forgetting their lines, um, all that sort of thing. And it ended on the day Liverpool played Manchester United in 1988. And um, everyone said they needed a new soap opera. And that was the one that took over. Fergie had arrived at Old Trafford. And as you say, it's provided enough storylines over the last 20, 30 years to keep any strip fighters going and creating a career for them forever, really. But yeah, it is soap opera, it's drama. Um, and at the moment... Um, the storyline for Manchester United is a very sad and disappointing one, whereas Liverpool have got all the best lines, as they say. Yes. One of the plot twists that the soap opera has never actually produced in the in the Premier League uh, period is Manchester United and Liverpool going for the title to the last day together. And we speak to fans on both sides of the divide in the book about, you know, what would have happened. You know, uh, Liverpool and City have been very tight in the last five years. You know, they've played in the Champions League. They've had two uh, Premier Leagues that have gone right down to the wire. Uh, very, very exciting developments. And we speak to the fans on, on both United and Liverpool, and the Liverpool fans say, imagine if that had been Liverpool against Manchester United. Yeah. And one of the guys we speak to said... They'd have been writing Hollywood movies about it if it had gone down to the wire, Liverpool and Manchester United. Ooh. And we were speaking to uh, the guys from Red Men TV, which <laughs> is the Liverpool online TV channel. And they were saying, you know, the Premier League would love the idea of uh, the soap opera uh, coming into uh, fruition with a, a plot line like that. It's the one plot line they've never had in the history, 30-year mm. history of the Premier League. Manchester United against Liverpool on the last day of the season. Imagine that. United fans, it's a lot of imagining required at the moment. <laughs> Indeed. I suppose the closest was 95 when Kenny Dalgleish was manager of Blackburn and it was... Was it Liverpool against Blackburn on the last day? It was indeed. Yeah. I was at Anfield that day and it was a very strange experience that because 
obviously Liverpool had it within their gift, if you like, to give Manchester United the title. I think Manchester United, Jim might correct me if I'm wrong, I think Manchester United were at West Ham that day. That's um, right. And struggling to beat an inspired Ludic McBosco. Mm-hmm. Alan Shearer gave uh, Blackburn the lead, and obviously there is the double-edged sword of A, uh, didn't want Manchester United to win the league, and B, if Manchester United didn't win the league, Kenny Dalglish was the manager of the team that would prevent them. Anyway, in the last minute, I think Jamie read that maybe. Yeah, it was. Who scored a free kick to give Liverpool a 2-1 win. And there was a genuine feeling of mixed emotions in that ground. Because A, yes, Liverpool had scored, so they were happy. But B, there was a genuine fear that that goal had given Manchester United the title. And if you remember, there was a very, very short delay before the news came through from Upton Park that Manchester United had failed to beat West Ham. Somebody informed Kenny Dalglish. His face was wreathed in smiles. And the whole of Anfield exploded in applause. So in the end, it was the perfect day for them. Liverpool had won, but Blackburn had also won the title under King Kenny. But there was that moment, maybe just a few seconds, when Liverpool had presented themselves in the horror scenario, nightmare scenario of being the team that gave the title to Manchester United. Fortunately for them, it never happened. But that those few seconds were an insight into just how deep this all runs. The idea that Liverpool fans, plenty of them, and it's happened with other clubs since. I remember um, when Everson played Manchester City a few years ago and they had the chance to damage their title hopes. Those fans were almost happy to see Liverpool lose on that particular day. Before I bring Jim in, uh, one of the great lines, uh, the best line of the book is comparing Andy Carroll and Luis Suarez to Tom Allen and Tyson Fury. I don't know if that was your line. Jim, so he can credit credit for that one. No, that's brilliant. But um, the other thing I learned is that Ferguson was, of course, inspired by what Louis van Gaal was doing at Ajax in 1995. And that 95-6 season, which is the first season I remember, I'm not going to give my age, uh, much like Jim isn't going to give his age in his introductory statements in the book Red on Red, which is out now. But that season ended at Wembley with one of the ditch-waterist finals between... And you, you say this, I like that line, um, watching... Riveting watches and watching riveting. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yes, it ends with uh, Liverpool losing in the, more or less the last minute to a Cantona goal and a loss of young lads from Manchester from the Eric Harrison, Brian Kidd class of 92 playing in that final. What would have happened, Jim, had Liverpool won? Because the narrative would be, ah, they deserved those white suits. Oh, very much so. I think it's interesting. Um, people like Jamie Redknapp uh, and Roy Evans, who we speak to in, in the book, who was Liverpool's manager that day, basically said nobody would be talking about the white suits if we'd won. <laughs> it became a, a, an easy label to to give uh, Liverpool. But the interesting thing is, of course, they lost. And they were the, very much the nearly team. And for Liverpool's fans... They, were, they did actually associate the defeat with the, the suits. They saw it as symbolic of a team that didn't have the professionalism, that didn't have the drive, that didn't have the internal discipline to match Manchester United. And so, therefore, the suits became symbolic. But you're right. I think it was that style versus substance thing, wasn't it? And yeah. on, those day, on, on that particular day, it was very bad style against no substance. And I watched a lot of that team play and they were very, very frustrating to watch because there was so much talent in it. Every now and then, they would wipe teams up the floor with them. You know, Fowler, McManaman, uh, people like that. 
outstanding young players, but too often, and I think I remember writing at the time, they were the team you just couldn't trust uh, because there was a soft underbelly to them. And as, as we describe in the book, the two teams came out before kick-off the traditional bowl around Wembley. Liverpool looking like basically an ice cream seller's convention. Manchester United, sharp, dark suits, very businesslike, here to take the 1-0 win if needed. I mean, I was actually at the unveiling, if that's the right word, of these suits at Melwood. It was your classic pre-cup final business where you go up and, you know, you see the suits and you interview a couple of players for your preview, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, we up at Melwood and the doors open and Neil Ruddick and sort of led the players out. And there was a collective gasp from everybody there, including, you know, the journalists, photographers, anyone else who happened to be around. And let's just say that was not a gasp of admiration. Mm. It was a gasp of what the bloody hell are these people doing? And when you wear those suits, you have to win. Mark Lawrence says that. You wear those suits, you have to win. If you don't win, people will not only be disappointed with the result, they will look at those suits and remember them. But it's very interesting because the chapter, and you speak to Jim Beglin, who calls it feral football. These A football match might break out in the middle of some war. But in the 1980s, and the, it's great social history, and you bring in Steve Rotherham and um, Andy Burnham, uh, who is both a Scouse and a Mank. That's a great anecdote. Uh, future Prime Minister Andy Burnham, but we can't go into politics uh, because we're talking about Man U and Liverpool, which is uh, war minus the shooting. But in the 80s, Liverpool's people, of course, the managed decline and all of that. But it was Interesting that you speak to fans who effectively go and nick things from Europe and nick trainers. But these fans are dressing in flashy suits and, and keks in order to kind of remind them that they, they have an aspiration. The football team were doing so well. The stat, Is it like four European Cups in six years and then seven first division wins in nine? Liverpool was the wondrous place uh, in the 1980s. Uh, but the significant line in the book is Liverpool had the trade, Manchester could make money. So I wonder if it was part of the idea to make the football rivalry microcosmic of the rivalries between the two cities on the M62. It's a, that's a really interesting point, Johnny. We, we put on the cover that this is the fiercest rivalry, and I could sense in world football, and I could sense even in your even in your introduction there, there's a hint of scepticism. Hey, yeah, but what about Walker River, etc. And as you say, it's by far the biggest. It's by far, uh, it's the one that has the highest television ratings and so on. But what's different about Liverpool and Manchester United is that there isn't that, the, the engine that drives most football rivalries. So you talk about uh, Celtic Rangers, that's religion, it's history, it's politics, it's all those things. It's also geography, they're very close to each other. OK, Madrid-Barcelona, they're not close to each other, but that is politics, it's history, it's nationalism, it's republicanism, it's the Spanish Civil War. United-Liverpool, they're neither close, so you haven't got that kind of workplace, playground rivalry that you've got with Spurs against Arsenal, Birmingham City against Aston Villa. But also they haven't got the religious element or, or any of that. What football has done is kind of articulate uh, a civic rivalry. So there was always a civic rivalry. But in the time since the 1970s, it's football 
that has been the engine of this division. And you talk to, you know, people I grew up with in, in Manchester who are now very significant people. I mean, I've got a mate who was at school who's a high court judge who talks about thieving scousers and you'd never trust the scouser. And you, the, the similar, you speak to people in Liverpool who would talk about Manchester's snooty superiority and I've never met a decent mank and all this kind of thing. And it all comes from the football. That civic rivalry is driven by the football. It's, it's a really interesting the way that it feeds into all aspects of the relationship between the two cities because they're really similar places, Johnny. I don't know how much you know I've about I've been to both, them, you know? yeah. They're really similar in, in so many ways, apart from this one that seems to infect so much of what's going on. Well, it is the, it's the Phil Chisnell derby. <laughs> Phil Chisnell. You're absolutely right. You know, uh, uh, for those uh, listening to this pod who've, who've, who've never heard book. of him, Phil Chisnell was the last person to be transferred directly between Manchester United and Liverpool in 1965. Now, there have been five or six players who've gone directly between Rangers and Celtic, ten who've gone between Barcelona and and Real Madrid. There have been five men who have actually um, uh, managed uh, both the two clubs in Istanbul. Um, So, you know, there's kind of... People managed to step across the breach, but not between Manchester United and Liverpool. 1965, the last player directly between the two clubs. That's if, you, if you think about someone like Michael Owen, should be, and I'm sure in the eyes of some Liverpool fans, he is a legend of that club. He's quite someone who won an FA Cup title effectively off his own boot in 2001 against mm-hmm. Arsenal. When he moved to Manchester United, he didn't move directly from Liverpool to Manchester United. He'd been to Real Madrid, been to Newcastle. Then he ended up at a whole trap. There is no question at all in the eyes of a lot of Liverpool fans, and he gets this on social media and he's aware of it, in the eyes of many Liverpool fans, his standing as a Liverpool player was very badly affected by the fact that he signed for Manchester United and was happy to do so. My view is, why shouldn't he sign for Manchester United? What's he meant to do? Retire just to avoid upsetting some Liverpool fans who don't like it. But he did it, and there's no question that because he was seen in that Manchester United shirt, he was seen scoring a famous goal in the last minute of the Manchester derby. It's affected his standing and his status with Liverpool fans. Again, it's an example of what we examined in the book, how deep this all runs. Even someone like Michael Owen is, is, is not immune to the toxicity of that relationship. And Jim, maybe if I can let Jim explain a very interesting story about John Scales, yes, one of the players please. who played yes. for Liverpool in the 1996 FA Cup final. John Scales uh, revealed to us uh, when we chatted to him. Interestingly, Michael Owen, uh, we approached him for this, but he, he didn't want to um, uh, speak to us because he basically, <laughs> I, I, I think he, he knew he was on to a loser. You know, what could he say? That Because the moment he mentions it, it, it just causes him grief. But John Scales, interestingly, after the 96 Cup final, he fell out with uh, the hierarchy and a couple of the players at Liverpool. He was very disappointed in their performance in 96. And he asked for a transfer. And the place he wanted to go to, he tells us, was Manchester United. And his people put out feelers to Manchester United. As it happens, United weren't interested and he went to Tottenham instead. But we said to him, Come on, John, you couldn't have gone from 
Liverpool to Manchester United. You know, how how would you have done it? I mean, it would have been just ridiculous. You know, the United fans wouldn't have trusted you because you were an ex-Liverpool player. Liverpool fans would have loathed you into eternity. And he said, it was a risk I was prepared to take at that time. So, interestingly... He's definitely a Southerner. I think he's probably a Londoner at scales. I think he probably, you know, he did actually say to us, look, if I'd been born in Liverpool, I probably wouldn't have done it. Um, He he made the comparison with Robbie Fowler, didn't he? He said, if I was Robbie Fowler, he said, there's no way I would have considered that. He said, but as Jim said, you know, I'd come from Wimbledon, but I was an outsider, even though he really enjoyed living in the city. Um, He he, he would not have felt the sort of, if you like, the, that it would result in him being a pariah if he did it. Heard, as Jim said, in the end, it didn't come to anything because um, United didn't want him and he then went to Tottenham. But he was prepared to do it, although he was aware that if it was a local uh, player who was considering that, he would not have done it. There is a great anecdote right at the end of the book with Danny Murphy that I won't spoil because you'll have to buy Red on Red. Uh, a book by <laughs> Phil McNulty and Jim White, listed in order of alphabetical surname and no other reason. Uh, actually, Jim Absolutely. should be first because United have won twenty titles. But let's not split hairs <laughs> or anything about that. You had, um, get, you had to get the and, you had to get the and in as well. So over two lines, and Jim White is it better with my name? Well, Jim's written more I'm, books, I'm, and I'm sticking with that. Yeah, <laughs> yes, yes, it, and it looks great. The cover looks great, Scott. Uh, Stephen Gerrard and the man who told a fanzine that he hated Scousers. That was an amazing revelation. <laughs> it was the, it was a fanzine writer that Gary Neville had told he hated Scousers, and thus. The chant was born. Uh, we haven't got time to mention Paul Ince, who was kicked out of both clubs when they were reshuffling. The open-minded foreign players under Gerard Houllier. So who rang your house in, was it 2000, Phil? Yes, it was, uh, it was Gerard Houllier rang the, um, a flat I was living in in Liverpool. And it was my then uh, partner, now my wife, Lynn, who... And we'd become friendly with Gerard. So basically what had happened was Liverpool had played the day before at Old Trafford. Sammy Hippier had got injured and Gerard hesitated over making the substitution because it was close to half-time. Basically, what he did was he then said, yeah, wait, United scored. He'd been up all night agonising at Melwood over this and then decided to start ringing people. So at seven o'clock in the morning, our phone rang and I heard Lynn talking to somebody thinking it was a friend of hers who was a bit disappointed that Liverpool hadn't won and blah, blah, blah. It turned out to be Gerard ringing our flat and speaking to her before me, I should add, asking her what she thought of the substitution and whether he'd done the right thing. And she said he had done the right thing. The book starts in 1977. Jim, can you corroborate Steve Rotherham, who called the two goals absolute shite? <laughs> that's right. He did the two Manchester United goals. I think that's really unfair, actually. Stuart Pearson's wasn't a bad goal. Oh. Rotherham, you're wrong. Indeed. The book Red on Red contains um, a chronology of Manchester United versus Liverpool. Going back to the Matt Busby era, which we didn't get to, but that's at the very beginning of the book. There's a lot of fan commentary. Uh, Brendan Wyatt comes out very well, as does Peter Hooten, who chose to go to the FA Cup final, that FA Cup final in 77, and not go to Rome for the European Cup final. Uh, Norman Whiteside comes out very well, and the key is the defensive partnership, which I'm sure... Phil and Jim, you will talk about as you promote this brilliant book, uh, which doesn't come out in, in the States until next year. But in the week before the M62 derby, the Phil Chisnell derby, uh, I hope people will click by and have a flick through this fabled history. But best of luck with it. 
and enjoy Qatar as much as you can. Just like the library! Just like the library! Just like the library!